0: And overall, yeah, productivity, I think, goes up. Um, Creativity certainly goes up. And by, by productivity and creativity, what I'm talking about is the freedom that the world is giving us to work in the way that we wish to
1: work. Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we help professionals navigate the emotional and promotional sides of the job search in order to stress less and earn more in their careers. My name is Martin McGovern, founder and lead coach at Career Therapy, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Please welcome Professor Patrick Murphy to the podcast. Patrick is the professor in residence with the Innovation Depot, as well as the Goodrich Entrepreneurship Chair at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. We met back in my undergrad days at DePaul University, and in our conversation today, we talk about personality, anxiety, and how to build a resilient career. If you like this show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us spread the word and help more job seekers like you build their careers. And be sure to connect with Patrick on his site in the show notes below. That's all for our intro today. So without further ado, here's my convo with Professor Patrick Murphy. Patrick, super excited to have you with us today. Um, we met many years ago, back when I was an undergrad, and you've uh, you kind of helped me, me and my buddy Raj, start to think about and explore, you know, what could be done with a career and with entrepreneurship and with innovation and all these different ideas. So just want to start off by saying thank you and very appreciative to be able to talk with you today. Um, And I'm really excited to dig into uh, a little bit about, you know, personality and how, you know, that affects our ability to build our careers, to think about things strategically, Um, how personality maybe conflicts with work and a a whole number of other things. But just wanna say thanks for joining us today as we kick things off here.
0: You're welcome, it's great to be here. And uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to do what I love to do so much. It's been great to watch your career grow and see all the exciting work that you're doing.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, so let's just kick it off. I'm curious, when did you first start thinking about personality in regards to our careers?
0: probably when I was in undergraduate, um, my undergraduate program back in the mid nineties, I was a business and organizational psychology double major. It's, um, it's an area of study organizational psychology, where we, we try to understand people better in, in order to design work, design jobs and so forth around them to enhance human performance. It is probably the opposite side of the coin, um, compared to another field of study called, um, human factors psychology, where you don't really mess with the people too much. What you do is you, you design like technologies and spaces to like ergonomics to promote human performance. So there's a little bit more of an engineering component, but I was studying that for a bit. And then I was focusing more on the organizational psychology side where we understand people, not the spaces, but the people and how they handle information, we can design work to bring out their best. And that was probably in the mid nineties when I was an undergraduate student.
1: Interesting. What were some of the biggest kind of milestones in that form of thinking over the years? I know I've heard studies about like, if you change the light in an office, if you change the temperature in an office, if you have people take their strengths assessments, like what were some of the big milestones that you've seen over the years that have had the biggest impact?
0: Oh, gosh. I mean, there were there were good ones and bad ones. I mean, if you go way back, like a hundred or a couple hundred years ago, the earliest stages of this field of study were pretty unethical and sad they would they would measure the shape of people's heads and then typecast you and tell you what you were cut out to do and what you were cut out not to do and so forth and it it just it started out in a very archaic way and if you if you go back even farther like hundreds or thousands of years you know you've heard of a lobotomy or like you know locking people up and having them committed it it all kind of grew out of that but you know thankfully it's evolved quite a bit in the 30s and 40s and 50s there were some real pioneers like um, Elton Mayo, for example, which is one of the fathers of the field of organizational psychology and uh, Frederick Taylor in the you know these are early mid 20th century types of folks and they were working doing a lot of work at Western Electric in Chicago and other places, but they would do what were called time and motion studies in order to enhance productivity. And so what they would do was um, measure everything. Um, how long it takes to do a task, where you need to go to do your work, and whether you're loading or unloading a a train car or doing some other sort of uh, work in a shop, they would measure everything and then structure the work and measure the level of stress and the, the abilities of the person doing it and then reconfigure things to enhance productivity. That has serious problems too, because what it turns into is you're treating people like they're Machines. If you're not really careful, and that gave way to a kind of humanistic focus. Uh, Mary Parker Follett was a was a great researcher in terms of looking more at the human side of uh, of work, and you know people's stress levels, emotions, and different things like that. And that that evolved, you know. And of course, Freud was earlier than this, but you know, way back decades before that, kind of in a parallel stream of psychology. You had Freud, which almost treated personality, which we're gonna talk about, is like, a, it was like people are a teapot, right? If the pressure builds and then there's gotta be a way for it to, to come out. And we'll talk about traits in that way a little bit later. I think there's a lot of merit in that, um, in that uh, metaphor, I guess, for thinking about psychology and personality. But then as we got into the 70s and the 80s Um, technology and this view of organizations as open systems where information could come in and go out and just like people could and people could learn and grow as an organization evolves in relation to its environment that opened the way to a lot of really interesting um, research and a better understanding of organizations and all of this by the way there's like layers of history here so another layer of history alongside the the industrial organizational psychology and alongside the Freud was just the concept of bureaucracy, which Weber, Max Weber, who was a German sociologist came up with by studying the Prussian postal service. And then, you know, like the organizational chart and the levels of authority and the divisions of labor that go across horizontally, that took great hold. And it really had a profound effect on how we think about work. And you had folks like Franz Kafka, who is a cousin of Max Weber, by the way, writing these fantastical, like fictional works, like, like the castle or metamorphosis, which were really deep, deep dives into what the bureaucratic form or a bureaucratic world, the effect of that on the human spirit. And in the metamorphosis, it, it turns a human into a, a cockroach, into a monstrous vermin. And, and so this Bureaucracy is sort of very slowly gone by the wayside as we've evolved our understanding of people at work. And now we have much more organic team-based solutions with technology and whatnot. So it's a lot better than it was, but personality has been a constant throughout this history. And, And nowadays we have some really innovative ways of thinking about it and how to appeal to it and how to design work in relation to it. And it relates very much to stress and well-being as well
1: yeah and i love how you're kind of talking about all these different points in history because right whenever i find it so interesting when we look at history whenever people were in that moment right we look back at it now and we're like that's archaic i can't believe we did that but in the moment it was innovative and it was exciting and people were really mm. into it you know in some of the most horrific things in our history at the time right. people were like we're helping people we're like we're doing bloodletting and that's that's how you get the the things like the bad spirits out of people or stuff like that. Um, right. And I find it so funny that whenever you're in it, um, it doesn't seem it seems exciting. And so you look at what we're doing today. Right. Or even just let's let's take a, a kind of recent look at history right so i remember entering the workforce when everything was still very cubicle based right everyone had their cube and their desktop and you would pop into each other's cubes or distract each other by like looking over like a prairie dog and things like that and then in my next job we shifted to the open office workspace and that was like the big trend in my early career is all these offices changing into that open office and we saw a massive like the 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 excitement around it was, we're going to collaborate so much more. We're going to have all these great, like, you know, intersections of people because the space is created this way. But then what you end up seeing is a lot more anxiety, a lot more stress, a lot of people feeling like they're being watched by every angle. And you actually see a decrease in collaboration in these environments. That's right. And I'm then, glad
0: you recognize that because I've seen that too. And it, it was very interesting to me, but this open workspace concept is sort of getting a you know, people are thinking and rethinking it, and maybe it's not as good as it was cracked up to be.
1: Do you? Were you like, when when that was all happening? Were you sort of aware of it, talking about it? Were students asking about it? People that were like, was it a big debate at the time? What was what what was your experience with that kind of um, analysis when it was happening?
0: Yeah, it's huge. I mean, it's a it's a it's a great question, and you you made an excellent point earlier about the, you know, our historic. Perspective. I call this the humility of the historian. If you're going to do historical research, you have to have a profound sense of humility because it's very easy to apply the standards and the perspectives of civilized society today to an earlier time and make sense out of things based on what we know today. But a lot of those things that we're looking at, which, sure, by our standards, were terrible. And I think if you could go back in time and educate the people back then about what would be in the future, they'd probably agree with you. But those bad activities are, are fossilized. They are almost frozen in the history of time. And when we look back at them, we must understand the world has changed profoundly since that was the present. And we need to have a certain kind of humility will make sense out of things. Because if you think for a moment that 500 years from now, someone's not going to look at us and say, oh man, they ate meat. Oh man. I don't know if that'll happen or not. I, I, I don't eat a lot of meat, but I do eat lamb, you know, just full disclosure here. Or they might say you worked in cubicles or you did manual labor. I mean, these things are illegal. They might be illegal in 500 years and we will be judged in the very same way that we judge the past so there's a profound sense of humility but regarding the workspaces and all of that um absolutely so that that was what time and motion studies like i referred to earlier they they were doing a lot of that design of spaces in order to make it more uh, compatible with high performance and yeah when the i remember the seeing these pictures of like you know, Yahoo did a very famous interview when they first came onto the scene. Like they were the first big search engine, and this is in the mid. I was still an undergrad and I was watching this. So I was getting really interested in this stuff. But the the co. I think it was uh, what's his name, Jerry Yang, and maybe one of the other the other individual. They were sitting on mainstream like news channel, in these big gaudy purple chairs, and people thought, oh my gosh, wow. And and then Google came out, and they would have like fun workspaces. And I remember a lot of the spaces in Chicago, there were, there's one, I don't know if it's called like red frog events or something like that, but they had that, like a, yeah. a, a zip line inside their office. Treehouse, and then, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A treehouse and all of that. So yeah, you know, I don't put a lot of stock into the, you know, the, the changes aren't permanent, but the change is permanent, right? So these these will come and go. And I, I, I'm optimistic enough to believe that we're always improving upon what we're doing. So yeah, the cubicles are no good. Then we you know swung toward these open formats for physical workspaces and then they have their drawbacks. So now it's sort of a moderated version of the two. And now with working from home, right, there's, a, there's an extreme push for, you know, because of the prevailing circumstances and partially not, partially because of technology. But I, I think we're alert and we evolve in relation to these trends. And overall, yeah, productivity, I think, goes up. Um, creativity certainly goes up. And by, by productivity and creativity, what I'm talking about is the freedom that the world is giving us to work in the way that we wish to work which is very important from a personality perspective because personality traits are kind of like biological needs like hunger or thirst or whatnot when when they're not satisfied there's a motivation to express them and satisfy them like if you're really really thirsty and you're you're almost dying of thirst you you're just really motivated to drink water and then when you finally do you're just motivated to perform in relation to satisfying that need Personality is kind of like that. If you, if you have a strong need to be sociable or to be in control or to, to be alone or whatever it is, if the environment is not giving you an opportunity to express that trait, you're motivated to express it. And if there's no opportunity to express it, it drives anxiety and stress, whatever the trait is. And so people are at their best when the environment gives them the opportunity to express who they are right down to the level of their traits. That's when people tend to do their best work because it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't drain them. It rejuvenates them.
1: Yeah, and I love that we're, we're transitioning into that because it really is one of those things where um, even if you don't have, let's say you haven't taken a personality test, you haven't gone through these things. Like uh, it's not, I, I think sometimes people think if I just don't look at it, it won't affect me, you know? <laughs> and we, we definitely see that that's not true, right? It's almost like the discontent occurs internally, emotionally, whatever, and then we almost catch up to it rationally later uh, when we start going, well, why am I feeling this way? Why do I you know, get home at the end of the day and not feel how I think I should be feeling? And And it's so funny because companies really want to use these things in productive ways, um, and some do it better than others. And I think of course, as we're talking about with old trends, with new trends, there's good ways of using them, bad ways of using them, right? With personality tests, I you know recently watched that, I think it was a Netflix documentary or something where you know, it's like personality tests can be really great on an individual level to understand yourself. But maybe if they're used in the hiring process, they can be discriminatory. Um, But maybe if they're used in an office context, they could be helpful. I know personally I worked at a company and we did a strengths finders and the whole thing was like a three, four day seminar. And at the end, they go, all right, here's your strengths. Here's your weaknesses. Here's the whole list, top to bottom, put it up in your cubicle and focus on your strengths. And I go, great. But all of my job responsibilities are the weaknesses. I was like, can I change my job? Nope all right, well, I don't know what to do with this information. So it's like, they're, you're, you're almost given this key, but not given like a door to put the key into in a way sometimes. So I'm curious, what are your sort of views on, you know, if someone is curious about these things, or let's just start on the individual level. If someone's curious about these things, where should they start?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And um, you made a great observation there. People you know, you, you talked about ignoring it and not looking at it. People have profound abilities to uh, sublimate and ignore things. We call them defense mechanisms. There's a lot of different defense mechanisms that we can set up, little psychological tricks that we play on ourselves so we don't have to deal with things that may be uncomfortable. And it, it, it's across the board. What, what's uncomfortable to you may be uncomfortable to another person, but it may not be uncomfortable to a third person. And all three of you may have very different defense mechanisms for avoiding different types of things based on who you are. And it happens at work all the time. People avoid difficult conversations, they avoid tasks they don't wanna do and so forth. And like we are just talking about, it has a lot to do with, you tend to avoid those situations if they don't give your, your traits and what you're truly made of at, at the level of your character and your personality. You avoid the situations that don't allow that to naturally come out. Those are the ones that feel uncomfortable to you. I mean, some people, most people don't like to argue and fight but some people do because they just have that personality. They will be attracted to that kind of situation and that's where they, they feel comfortable. And so with regard to learning more about it, I, I think it's important to think about why you would want or why you should want to learn more about it and my answer to that question is because the key for any individual to be able to deal with change or deal with uncertainty is a changeless sense of who they are the key to being able to deal with change and uncertainty is a sense of what makes you you that won't change that's not changeable that's your rock that's your foundation and your personality is very closely aligned with that. Your values are too, your cultural values, your experiential values, even your knowledge, but personality is a big part of this. And so whether it's Strength Finder or whether it's some of the other personality models and tests that are out there, some of them you can't buy. You can't buy it unless you're a researcher with a terminal degree and doing research and they have to approve it and all that, but there's some really good ones like um, the Personality Research Form. It's called the PRF. It was uh, developed by a psycho- Canadian psychologist named Doug Jackson, who is my intellectual grandfather. One of my early advisors was a student of Doug Jackson's, and has 20 personality dimensions. There is another really popular one called the. Um, it was originally called the NEO, um, the NEO PI, the Five Factor Model of Personality, which is neuroticism, extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, and openness to experience. Um, There are others. Um, One that I really particularly like is called the interpersonal adjective scales. I think it was Wiggins and Pincus that originally published that. And what they do in that particular personality inventory is they don't measure your traits in a vacuum as an individual because they believe that all personality traits have a social component. It's literally impossible to think about your individual traits without reference to the situation around you involving other people. So kind of like what I was talking about earlier, when you need the environment to give you opportunities to express yourself, if you have zero environment around you or zero reference to something else, it doesn't have any meaning and so with that particular framework it's based on what's called the circumplex model of personality circumplex is sort of like a what do they call it a portmanteau or uh, where you circular ordering of complexity and you have uh two orthogonal dimensions with uh, the vertical one having dominance or strength at the top and the polar opposite of that at the bottom is the opposite not strong weak submissive whatever it is polar opposites for that dimension opposites attract. So weak tend to work a little bit better with the strong only because, you know, you you take out the exploitation and all of that that might come into it or the bullying or whatnot that might, people who don't want to be in charge prefer to work with somebody who prefers to be in charge because they each give each the other an opportunity to express who they are. You know, opposites attract. The other part of the circumplex model of personality is a horizontal dimension um, where at one side of it, you have what we'll call warm and agreeable, wanting to be around other people. The polar opposite of that is cold, not wanting to be around other people and to work alone because you're perhaps mildly misanthropic or you just don't like to work around other people. So for that dimension, the horizontal one, trying to construct an image in everybody's mind here, it's birds of a feather flock together. So unlike the vertical dimension, which is opposites attract, the horizontal one is birds of a feather flock together because warm people clearly prefer to be around other warm people, both of whom like to be around others. Cold people at the polar opposite of that dimension who don't really like to be around anybody, but if they had to be around somebody else, it would be another what we'll call cold person who doesn't like interaction because they won't get on each other's nerves. So if you take those two bipolar dimensions, which are orthogonal, which means they don't correlate. They're like at a right angle to one another. You can take factorial combinations around the quadrants and then you have uh, you know, strength and warmth equals extroversion. The polar opposite of extroversion is non-strength and coldness, which is introversion. Strength and coldness, which is like the third quadrant here. I know it's getting a little bit unwieldy here. The third quadrant is, uh, we might call it Machiavellian or uh, controlling or exploitive or whatnot. And then the polar opposite of that, which is warmth and non-strength would be meekness or obsequiousness or uh, phlegmatic or or that kind of thing. And so building on that, which by the way, comes from uh, classic Roman times, like Marcus Aurelius would write about this. And the key is balance. You don't wanna be too far in any dimension. The words for this, by the way, relate to physical elements in the body, like phlegmatic, which I think I just mentioned. The root word is phlegm, which is mucus. Extroversion, <clears throat> the word used for that, sanguineous, sanguine is the Greek word for blood. Um, then you have melancholy, which you may have heard, and colic or cholera is kind of an acerbic, erasable personality. And then um, <clears throat> you have uh, it's like black bile and yellow, yellow bile, bilious. So, it, and, and then they would do the bloodletting, like you mentioned earlier, if you're out of balance, very, you know, dark history, but it still holds true. It, it's still important to think about that and the need for balance. I think if you're able to balance yourself out in terms of a framework like that, you know, not, you know, I'm not saying change your personality. I'm just saying, be aware of where you fall and how you relate to a framework like that that's an answer to your question. Why should we want to learn about this? Look at a model like that. And it's easy to find it's classical four humorous theory. If you Google it, you can look it up and find it and read the history of it. But things like this are good because you have to, you have to know thyself in order to live and thrive in this world.
1: Yeah. And that know thyself piece is so interesting. Um, and it spans so many different things. And what I find so funny is that, um, once you actually start to understand your personality a little bit more, whichever test you start with or whichever body of work you want to study um, it almost, as you're learning about it, you kind of realize why you're attracted to that specific test too. I, I see that very often. It's like people who are a little bit more creative might lean towards the less scientific things and people who are more scientific lean towards, you know, the big five or something like that. And it is interesting. Cause like not everything, you know, I've been traditionally using things like uh, MBTI, because that was one of the first ones that I was introduced to um, with clients. And I find it interesting, because I know it's not necessarily scientific, and there's a lot of history there, and you can go into how it was created and everything, but um, I'm as interested in what they disagree with in the test as what they agree with, because that that, I think, shows me as their coach, like, what... Do you believe about yourself? Because then people start to kind of open up and express themselves. So a lot of this stuff is good starting points for conversations and for exploration. And I think where people maybe people maybe get a little bit stressed out about it is that they think they need to be one identity, and like they're you they're trying to hope that this is going to solve some big problem in their life or answer some big question. Um, and maybe it will in some ways. Um, but I also, you know, I get hit with the question all the time of like, does your personality change over time? Can you change your personality over time? And I know you just said like, we're not trying to get you to change anything. But what are your what are your thoughts on people who are asking those kinds of questions? What would you say to them?
0: I I think personality change is not practical. I it's not something that I think changes. Um, much, if at all. Um, If it does occur with regard to a human being, we're talking about decades of being present in a very different type of environment that elicits certain kinds of behaviors in order to survive, and you're kind of, um, you know, you rewrite the code a little bit with regard to how you make sense out of stimuli in the environment around you, and then slowly that kind of occurs not quickly, but slowly. So, I'm not, you know, generally, I don't think personality change is something that's practical to talk about. What What I think is critical with regard to one's personality and maybe if they want to change it or don't want to change it, it's important to put it into context. So, you know, kind of like we were talking about earlier where personality doesn't really mean anything without reference to something else this can be, it can be really useful to think about your personality. If you get a sense of what it is from any framework that we've been talking about, any model, it doesn't matter. But then think about whether it fits or harmonizes with the context that you're in, at work, in your day-to-day life, the culture that you're in, whatever it is. And if if it does, that's one thing. But if it doesn't, that's another thing. Interactional psychology, which the the name Kurt Lewin would be who you'd probably find if you look up the, you know, your personality interacting with the environment to yield or produce behavior is, is important. And it holds essentially that behavior is multiply determined. It's not just your personality that drives your behavior. It's your personality in the context of the environment that you're in. It's also not purely the environment that drives your behavior. It's again, the environment interacting with the personality that makes you who you are. So it's the interaction that you're in. And that leads to some really interesting conversations and concepts like the fundamental attribution error, for example, or actor observer bias in which people will explain their own behavior in terms of the environment that they're in. It's not their fault. It's the environment that Mm -hmm. they're in. And an observer of that person will explain the individual they're observing An observer will explain that behavior that they observed in terms of that person's personality. Right. And, and so the actor of the behavior or the observer, they have these very different biases and it's very much related to interactional psychology. So I think as one thinks about their personality traits, it's vital to think about the context that you're in. And if you don't like what you think might be your personality, understand it may actually be your behavior and the environment has a lot to do with it. So whereas you may not be able to switch your personality to something different easily, you might be able to switch your environment a little bit more easily to produce the kind of behavior that you're more comfortable with.
1: Yeah. And one thing that I've noticed throughout my life is, so like I, I took the Enneagram recently and that one, I feel like it's a very, uh, it, it had a really interesting take on things And I've had just dozens and dozens of combos with a buddy of mine who uh, he's like a one and I'm a nine. And we can go into what that all is. But basically one of the things is that um, the type that I sort of, my results said I was uh, tends to merge with other types. I'm I'm very much like a harmonizer. I tend to try and merge with people. And so uh, it's funny because when I took the MBTI uh, years ago, the Myers-Briggs, and I was spending a lot of time with uh, Rajiv, who's my old business partner and who you know very well. Um, I actually tested more like him because we spend so much time together and I picked up um, some of the ideas that we would talk about on a daily basis. And you know, a lot of these are self-assessments. So when you're answering questions, there is, there is maybe a little bit of um, answering it towards what you think you should be answering versus what you actually feel sometimes. Mm-hmm and i'm curious you know where when you talk about the context versus or the environment versus the individual um i think when when folks are taking these personality tests sometimes they're hoping they test a certain way because that's what steve jobs was or that's what a leader is supposed to be and there's a lot of like social pressure to be a certain type of person and i think what we're talking about here is no like allow yourself to relax into who you actually are, and then play the game of that personality, that, like, how do you find success within your personality rather than trying to do something that doesn't fit you? And that's, I remember I was in therapy one day, and I was like, I feel like I'm relaxing into myself. Like, I'm almost letting go of these expectations in order to be more of who I am. And it's completely changed what my entire day-to-day looks like. Like, I went from trying to dress real snazzy, because I was around, you know, people like Raj, to wearing the exact same thing every single day. But it's just, it's funny that that's just like a small marker of like the external um, representation of the internal sort of conflict that people have. And I'm curious, when it comes to the internal conflict people have, where maybe one test is saying one thing, another test is saying another thing, and they're trying to sort of sort through all these details. And sometimes these things can get kind of complicated where it's like, you're this wing that, or you're a, you know, whatever it might be. When people are dealing with that conflict and maybe, maybe they have pressure from their parents or pressure from a job or pressure from something else. What would you say to them to help them maybe navigate this information and either create space for themselves to really think through these things and and be in a good place with it, or to, you know, push back on their environment a little bit, if need be? Well, there's a couple of
0: different things. Um, The the first one is, like we talked about earlier, getting to know yourself and who you truly are is the key to standing strong in all those different situations. So um, if you find yourself focusing on the environment around your social pressures or different things like that. It, it is important to turn that off and spend some time reflecting carefully with the help of others or through your own study and reading or whatever it is to get a sense of who you truly genuinely are because when you're in touch with that and then you make decisions or act in relation to that it's so authentic that you're not embarrassed or stressed about it just generally speaking from a measurement perspective when we're talking about um People wanting the result to be a certain way, right? Like you were like you were talking about. Um, the people who design and develop personality tests have known about this for a long time, and so a lot of them have been built with um, what we call. Um, they're built so that what we call social desirability bias doesn't skew the results, or what we've also what, what's also been called non-purposeful responding. And so if you look at an inventory, like um, the one I mentioned earlier, the first one I mentioned, the personality research form, the PRF, they were, Doug Jackson was really a pioneer in this area. He has a few items, you know, here and there throughout the long inventory of questions like, um, I don't know, true or false. I make all my own clothes and shoes. And then another one later, I have a glass eye. And, And so, you know, most people don't do those things, all right? There will be some, but the vast majority of people don't. So if you find that an inordinate number of those items, which are keyed in a particular direction, tend to be answered in the non-keyed direction, it's evidence that someone's not really paying attention to what's going on. That's called non-purposeful responding. And then the social desirability bias is simply items that cue on or load on or relate to things that are genuinely viewed in popular culture as being maybe cool or desirable or whatever it is, you know, and then they the answer is very much in line with what is popular. And this changes over time, by the way. So inventories of personality and tests need to be, you know, new additions need to come out to to reflect what is socially desirable at a particular time. So whether it's from the test taker's perspective, the one wanting to learn their personality. Again, I think the key is spend time getting to know who you are with the understanding that whoever you are, there's a place for you, there's a space for you. You just have to get to know who you are first and then that's good enough. Once you, no matter what your personality type is, you'll be able to deal with a lot of different pressures and environments as long as you know who you are first. And then, but in terms, I think it's very interesting in terms of measuring personality, the tests tend to do a pretty good job of um, indicating if somebody's, you know, trying to cover up who they might truly be. But it's a real thing. You're you're absolutely right.
1: And I really want to dig into that next step too, because when you do, all right. So you make some space. Let's say you know you're undergrad, you're in classes, you're taking these tests, you're learning these things. You're you haven't really experienced the working world yet. And I know you've worked with a lot of folks in this position. I want to be able to use this information in a way that sets me up for career success. And I think, you know, the typical way people think about that is make a lot of money, but there's a lot of different factors that contribute to success, right? Longevity in a career, not changing every X number of years, not having to start over 10 years in or something like that. And I'm curious when it comes to longevity, and bringing back this idea of stress management. I think one of the things that people struggle with the most in their career is getting into a job that doesn't align to their personality, which creates undue stress, which creates a kind of cascading effect for the next 25 years of, you know, figuring things out. Maybe some of that is necessary. But what, um, what would you say to someone who's in that position? And what should they be thinking about or what should they be considering when looking at companies, looking at jobs, looking at roles, once they have a somewhat idea of what their personality is, how do you assess environments and pick things that will align to your personality? What sort of things should they look for or red flags should they watch out for?
0: Sure. First of all, it's really important to have a profound sense of faith. Faith in who you are faith in your your values and what you believe in it it, you know and getting to know yourself is key to that but if you have that sense of faith you're able to say things to yourself like it won't always be this way and it and the truth is it won't but that's not a rational calculus right there you can't think your way through that one you have to feel your way through that one which takes you down to the level of your your values and knowing what your traits and your character and your makeup is. So that, that kind of faith leads to a kind of discipline for be, being able to deal with things that may not be all that pleasant in the present time, but knowing that they won't always be this way. That is a kind of mindset. It is germane to resilience and the ability to deal with an environment that is not necessarily exactly what you might want it to be Because you know that you're moving through it into the into some future where things will be better and better for you. The other part of this is very much related, but it's more related to how you process information. Um, Don't spend a lot of time thinking about the future because you can't predict it. Um, If anything, your values are what predict the future. I mean, I I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and I tell them you have to learn to feel the future. Your values are a very special element of your character and your personality and your your person. They have the character of expectations about the future. They are what enable you to see the future because you can feel the future. Why? Well, because when you're in a highly uncertain environment, you're going to tend to behave in light of your values. If you like to fight, if you like to explore, if you like to hide, if you like to run, what, whatever makes you you, that's what you will tend to do when you're in a radically uncertain environment. And that will be natural. You won't have to think about it and it will have an effect on the environment around you. And you can almost in a self-fulfilling way creates the environment that you want to be in if you have the discipline and the mindset to do that. Most people don't. It's something that you have to learn or be taught or mentored into. And so as a result of them not understanding it, they tend to think about the future. And if you think and predict about the future, there are huge gaps in your thinking that allow your fears um, to creep in there. And your fears are kind of like the dark side of hope. They're literally functionally equivalent to hope and faith. Like I said, they are the dark side of that because they're an irrational. They don't come from your values. They come from your fear is. You're you're afraid something may happen that you don't want to happen. And so you concoct stories and theories and hypotheses about what might happen. So I would advise young people, get to know yourself first, your values and your traits, and then play to that. Work in relation to that. Make decisions in relation to that and have faith that the larger environment will the universe will reward you for doing that. The good energy that you're putting out by living your life in this way will come back around to you with opportunities that emerge. If you don't live that authentically and instead you try to forecast some sort of future with your thinking, you're playing a game and you're learning, trying to learn these rules and play a game like chess and sometimes you lose. And it's not the right way, in my opinion, to think about one's professional life. So this kind of purpose-driven life, and by the way, all this stuff that I'm riffing on right now, I, I believe it's what, you know, know thyself or, you know, even back to the classics, the Greek philosophers, the unexamined life is not worth living. I believe that's what they were talking about when they made those kind of statements in you know, classic ancient Greek or, you know, the different sorts of languages that we've you know, we've translated it into this, but I think knowing thyself, but knowing thy your own values and then behaving in relation to that is key, not just for your success, but for your health. You will not feel as much stress if you do that and your work will be inspired and more motivated if and when you're able to do that. I, I give a lot of advice to entrepreneurs, especially in relation to this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I never really thought about faith being the opposite of fear I think fear is such a common feeling for folks but as we you know become more and more secular in our societal values I think faith has kind of lost its luster in some ways Um, and it's nice to kind of see it be brought back into that conversation with fear because people believe fear no one no one says well fear isn't a thing I need like the like fear is there you can't get rid of it but Faith is something you have to also cultivate. And I never thought about those as opposites. I like that a lot. Um absolutely. Yeah. I mean, think just real quick. This um you make a really important point. Think about anybody who,
0: you know, whether it's a you know tragic or extreme, unfortunate event, like if a loved one is at risk, right? That's something that's core to your values. And you will be brave. You will not feel fear. You will put yourself in harm's way, perhaps to save something or someone you truly love from danger. You will do that, you will risk yourself. And when you act out of a place of values or love or traits way down deep, that's when human beings are at their best. Fear goes away if you're able to tap into that part of your your personological makeup.
1: I think that's an incredible place to stop. Patrick, where can folks find more about you and what you're working on these days?
0: Probably the best place to go right now is my website, my faculty page, um, profpjm.com. A lot of podcasts and different events that I've done are there. My publications are there. Different lectures I've done. Even some of my teaching materials are there at profpjm.com. And you can also connect with me through there as well.
1: Wonderful. We'll link that all below. And Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: You're welcome. It was a pleasure to talk with you, Martin.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode today. I really appreciate your support of what we're building here at Career Therapy as we continue to try and explore the hidden side of modern work and tell some of the stories that maybe don't get enough light shed on them. If you enjoyed what you listened to today, I hope you will leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, Subscribe to this wherever you're listening or watching on YouTube, Spotify, etc. And uh, share this with some friends who you know are going through similar experiences and looking to build their career and, and gain some insights along the way. Again, thank you so much for stopping by, and I wish you the best. I'll see you on the next episode.